famous literary beginnings and search. Here we go, top page of Google responses. Literature's greatest opening paragraphs from Shortlist Magazine, 30 great opening lines in literature from The Telegraph, 53 of the best opening sentences from BuzzFeed. Why 53? And then 100 best first lines from novels, courtesy of American Book Review. I am fascinated by beginnings. If they fall flat, you've lost the reader. Down your book goes, back on the new release table, or whoosh, there it goes from the shopping cart. Your years of toil from a spark of inspiration to first draft to countless revisions to publication set aside just like that, based on the beginning. Welcome to Story Geometry. I'm Ben Hess, and this is episode 12, Three Beginnings. Brought to you by independent audiobook publisher Talking Book, talkingbook.pub, and in partnership with Literary Workshop Series, Writing by Writers, at writingxwriters.org. Our opening number one is from science and environmental writer Craig Childs. Opening two is from novelist and nonfiction writer B.K. Lauren. And opening three spotlight is on Pulitzer Prize finalist Luis Alberto Urea. We'll also have our next installment of Election Year Lit, works from the past inspired by, about, or during presidential election years. Before we dive into our first beginning, I need your input, your suggestions, your feedback. After 12 episodes, what's working with this podcast? What could we improve? Please complete the first ever Story Geometry listener survey before Friday, June 17th, and you'll be eligible to win a book from one of Story Geometry's authors. The survey is available at bit.ly slash storygeosurvey. That's bit.ly slash story geo survey with a capital S, capital G, and capital S again. The link is also available at storygeometry.org. I sat down with Craig Childs in Boulder, Colorado. Craig's the author of six books, including his most recent, Apocalyptic Planet, a field guide to the ever-ending Earth. I've been struggling around beginnings and how do pieces of work start. And for all the books you've you worked on, have you found that to be a consistent process or is, does it depend on the project? Yeah, it depends on the project, but I, I'm often lopping off the beginning huh. and the end. Yeah. <laughs> uh, most of my writing, it goes to the cutting room floor. Um, the, the, I start too early so, and I want to tell the whole story and when really we need to drop in in the middle of it where, where I say, God, this is what I want to tell in this story. And then I say, well, what is really the story about where does the story actually begin not where do you want it to begin because i'm not working for myself i'm working for for the reader that's i guess that's the way i look at it is that i'm not there to tell the story that i want to tell and all the detail that i want to tell it i'm there to tell the story that the reader needs to hear and and i got to remember the difference because what i want to tell is everything <laughs> you know you've got to understand every little detail and and then this will matter to you and and that's what i have to let go of you uh talked about hundreds of outlines for for what for some of these books or or many many outlines and yeah. and given the complexity and the structure and the narrative and the science have you tried to evolve process over over the years to make things more efficient yeah, I don't think I've gotten too much more efficient about it. Um, and I, I, 
I try to. I, I try to get ahead uh, by by saying, you know, don't write all this stuff that you're not going to use. Um, recognize where you're actually going to jump in on this story. But I still, the process is outlining and writing and writing and outlining and throwing away the outlines and, and getting closer and closer to something final. But it is, I write hundreds of outlines. Um, and sometimes it's the same you would look at it and you go, what's the difference? And I go, well, uh, the, the 17th line is different. Oh, really? <laughs> but the entire outline is, entire, is recreated. Yeah. No kidding. Uh, which is not efficient. <laughs> but I need to, I write it all out because yeah. I have to, it's, the writing of it is, is my brain going back through it again. Yeah. Yeah. And for me, just to read through my old outline isn't enough. I need to actually write that outline out. It seems like you do a lot of handwriting. And then getting into the computer is really an editorial process for you. Yeah, yeah, because I'll take it off of what I've written by hand, and I'll typeset it. And in typesetting, I'll change it. In fact, maybe I'll throw away what I wrote by hand, and the typesetting becomes the story, which, again, is terribly inefficient. I was wondering if you would be up for reading a beginning. Do you feel that the introduction is actually the beginning of the book? the the introduction is is just setting the book up um it's a it's a story that that outlines mm-hmm. what's going to be coming and and i th- i'm not sure if i i may not have an introduction in the book i'm writing right now because huh. I, I don't know how to feel about introductions you can yeah, you can yeah. skip over them but then i try to i'm i'm writing something that that i think is is valuable so this is craig child's reading the beginning of apocalyptic planet Chapter 1. Deserts Consume. I want to get me a little oblivion, baby. Counting crows. Sonora, Mexico. A dead cow lay on the side of the road, nothing left but hide and bone. We found it along a Mexican two-track where we'd been needing a reason to get out of the truck and stretch our legs. The cow seemed as good a point as any. My wife was driving and a friend named Devin Vaughn was crammed into the back of the cab. Devin's long spider legs pulled him out as he palmed the doorframe and squinted into the turquoise sphere of an arid northwest Mexico sky. The engine ticked in the heat as we wandered three different directions into the desert, each looking for space. Seven years into a drought, the land looked as if a bomb had gone off. It was the slow bomb of desertification, a withered withdrawal of life, horses the first to go, leaving stout but slender white bones. Cows followed, their carcasses pitched in the sand every several miles, as if they'd gone looking for help and never made it. There hadn't been a lick of rain in more than a year, not enough moisture to split a grass seed. Mesquite trees with sixty-foot deep taproots were the last of anything to have leaves. Dust-green brambles running down an arroyo, hard to tell any more what was still alive and what simply was. I could see a small ranch in the distance, a pozo, fenced in around a cement stock tank, gray metal windmill blades creaking in a hot, listless breeze. Nobody was home, hadn't been for a while. Hyde pulled over its rib cage like a stiff tent. The cow had an empty buttonhole for a left eye, and it was still wincing in the sun. I crouched at the carcass, tapped it with my pen, hollow sound, death drum. It had been a bull, not a big-boned pasture bull, but a lithe desert animal that didn't quite make it this time. Devin circled back to me. He wore a loose cotton shirt and had bare, sun-ruddied forearms roped with veins. 
Fantastic. I, I just love the structure of this where you've always got the the phrase of what's about to happen and then the quote and then and then you set us in place. Yeah, and these these are my favorite places. I mean, I love desolate landscapes. I, I don't know what it is, but <laughs> I just I mean they the book ends at the Atacama Desert in South America and where it hasn't rained for centuries and it, which makes this first dune complex look lush. Yeah, yeah. And I just, it was just immaculate being out there. Just everything, there's nothing alive. When when you're thinking about the, the structure for this book, how, how did you decide to start in Sonora? And then how also did you decide to frame the, the, the dead cow as the, as the opening? Well, I, I guess in the overall sense of the book, I wanted to start with lesser apocalypses and uh-huh. go to the yeah. big, planet's dead um and and i just i remember that cow so well uh and it actually became a landmark for us when we returned to get a cache the cow was there and and it it just represented that this is this is the end this is here here is where everything dies as you go deeper into the book the the scale increases uh the the impact of of what's happening lasts longer until you, know, you start getting out into the impact of extinction will last uh, 10 million years. Uh, the, then you get out to, to just the final end of the planet that eventually the, the planet's going to be evaporated by the sun. And this is what it's going to look like right before it happens. And this is, this is, what, the, this is what a fossil Earth is like, which still is, we found life it's even even at the end of the world this planet will be alive and that's that's where i wanted to carry it to where where in the end it actually we got some raindrops a storm came through and and we were in this little town san pedro de atacama and uh and raindrops fell on us and i've i i really struggled with the ending of this book because i i wanted to to have an epilogue and say this is what this is all about and but but i wanted this book to be a circle so that it didn't really have an ending, yeah. and I know readers have have said, well, "What's up with it? It didn't end." We were <laughs> was ready for the right. the final part, and I and that's what the ever ending idea uh-huh. is here is that this just doesn't stop. Well, Craig Childs, thank you so much for making the time. I really appreciate it. You're very welcome. Coming up in beginning two, teacher and writer B.K. Lauren reads the opening to her novel Theft, and we break it down and discuss. And then we close with Luis Alberto Urea, who reads and discusses the opening passage from his memoir, Wandering Time. But first, I had the chance to sit down with the founder of our sponsor, audiobook publisher Talking Book. And I asked him, why does he create audio stories? My name is Ben Machar, and I'm the publisher at Talking Book. So in 2011, I published my first audiobook for my aunt. Her name's Deborah Schlein. And she had published a couple of books in the 80s and wanted to get them onto iTunes and Audible. So I worked with a narrator and helped her get some distribution on the audio versions of those books. I'm Ben, Story Geometry, Ben Machar, Chris Hartram, Talking Book, Dot Pub, Go There. BK Lauren will be teaching this November at Writing by Writers Manuscript Bootcamp in Lake Tahoe, California. She and I chatted outside on a spring morning in Boulder, Colorado, as writers milled around outside behind us in between their workshop sessions. I really, really believe, and I, I wrote about this in, in my nonfiction book, Animal Mineral Radical, 
I think writing is listening, you know, and, and then I start wanting to say things, and then I start driving those points, and that to me isn't what art and fiction is about. It's not about driving a point or having something to say. It's about really listening to something that is, uh, you know, at the risk of sounding mystical, bigger than I am. You know, and there are a lot of things bigger than I am. It really feels like a listening process more than a planning process. When I say that the characters spoke to me, I really kind of literally mean that I hear their voices first, and then they start to tell me their stories. And I know that sounds really mystical, and it probably frustrates people, but that's how it works in me. I would love to have you read the beginning of Theft. Let me just take a peek at it. Of course, of course, (laughs) of course, take a peek. This is the beginning of Theft. And this is Willa in 1980. Riding through the tall grass sweetness of the Colorado prairie, wheat stalks whipping my legs, and the whir of insects, a high-pitched buzz, 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 turning me dizzy under that white-yellow heat pouring through the blue sky. My brother, Zeb, three older than me, and in high school by now, pedals while I hold tight to his belt loops. It's my bike he's riding. Used to be his before he handed it down to me last summer. He takes us through the field and pedals into the neighborhood where the houses are tall and the lawns take up a whole block of land. He slams the brakes on the bike, hops off, lets it fall. Come on, he says. He stretches his arm out out behind him for me to hold his hand. We walk to the side of the house, climb the stairs to the back deck, and he hands me the greasy thick gel, tells me to slather it on. No gloves. We're pros, he says. We leave no prints, no evidence. He tells me to slip through the barely open window. I'm small enough, and my body is limber and lithe, even for a kid my age. I slip like a penny into a bank, like a rabbit into a hole, and I drop down into another world, furniture I never did see before, dark heavy wood bed, chest of drawers, shining oak floors, and the sunlight has all day long been fingering its way between the gap in the closed curtains, making the wood smell the way only wood smells in the heat, something smoldering, it brims in my nostrils. On the stand next to the cushioned chair, there's a pair of glasses, black rims, smudged lenses. Across the back of the chair, a leather belt, the third hole sticking out like a belly button, the notch there worn deep, someone's hands cinching that belt every morning, gut hanging over, white sports shirt tucked in. I can see it all. It's my shortcoming, says Zeb. I see the people who live in the place, not their belongings, and I've got no eye for stealing, but I'm learning. Did you play with that beginning quite a bit, or or was that pretty much always how you knew you would start this story? I I didn't start with uh, Zeb at any time. Mm -hmm. Uh, I did start with what is now the second chapter. Okay. And I I flipped those back and forth. Countless times. Countless times, probably right up until publication date. Interesting. Yeah. And they can be flipped still. And (laughs) and it still works. (laughs) Well, BK Lauren, thank you so much for making the time. I appreciate it. Thank you. It's a great pleasure. Thanks so much. Today's third featured writer was navigating the despair of having published a novel that wasn't a commercial success. Getting going again was hard. Here's an excerpt from my chat with Luis Alberto Urea, including a reading from the beginning of his memoir, Wandering Time, Western Notebooks. During that hummingbird's daughter assault, <laughs> where apparitions were walking through, I mean, I don't want to sound crazy to your listeners, but some gnarly stuff was happening to me and um my mind you know with all the with all the trauma and strain and desperation and terror because i didn't know what was happening um and worry and desperately trying to write little you know little pieces for the tucson weekly for for coffee money and stuff um i found that i could no longer 
read very much. I couldn't read a book. So I was reading lots of haiku. I thought, 17 syllables, yeah, I can do that, man, you know. <laughs> and uh, I was hanging out in the used bookstore a lot, reading haiku poems. And, you know, a lot of the classic haiku poems are set in seasons. They're seasonal. Yeah. And the haiku itself is a seasonal poem. So in Japanese, not always in English, but there will be this this kind of slash-breaking word that puts things in context. And so I thought, I'm going to go... Because I needed some structure. I didn't want to just throw observations on the page. So I thought, well, I'm going to go through a year. Mm -hmm. And because I was really feeling down and because I realized this was a love gift to Cindy, whose real name, by the way, is Cinderella. I, I mean, come on. How can you not marry a woman named there Cinderella? You go. I did not know that. Come on. <laughs> but, um, but I thought since that was my gift to her and my attempt to hang on to life and hope... I'd put two springs in it. Uh -huh. So it starts in spring and ends in spring. That allowed me to go through these many, many... If you came to my house, for example, and I opened the cabinet, you'd be like, how many damn notebooks have you got? You know? I see things that Ed Abbey left behind 50 notebooks or whatever, and I think, wow, what a weakling. I've got <laughs> 200 or more, you know? And it, it's it's in spring, the first spring. Yep. It's Easter week. Okay. It's, uh, it's two pages. Is that Perfect. good? Okay. Easter, Colorado. The top parts of the mountain trail are finally melting out, all slush and snow suddenly gone. I suppose it's a metaphor for resurrection, the friendly path rising from the snow, basking in the sun back to life. Still, feathers of snow, unbelievably pretty clouds, aerial icebergs with bruised bellies, the crosses atop the churches rise stark and abandoned against the sky. The ineffable melancholy of the first flakes sneaking in among the spring raindrops. Flakes not even falling, circling, seem to be loitering in the air. I was going up the resurrected trail, and the angels were out. The poison ivy even looked like it was pushing out little flowers. I was moving at a good clip, had gone up about two miles, fresh sweat, feeling good, lubricating all the cogs, most dark thoughts pushed out by the spice of new spring air. Ahead, tooling up the trail in electric wheelchairs, a man and a woman. They were accompanied by one of those canine companion German shepherds wearing a backpack. Both of them were attractive and laughing. She was blonde. I motored past them and kept on hauling over the bridges across the Awakening Creek, then up to Four Mile Canyon. Sweat and think and stare at the old ghost truck you can see, tucked into the aspens. Then I drifted back down slowly, enjoying the creek. When I got back to the middle bridge, I climbed down near the water and let the riotous sparkles and glimmers transport me. When I climbed back up, the couple in wheelchairs was waiting, stuck, trying to get onto the bridge. The trail had eroded about three inches from the metal lip, and they couldn't get their chairs over. Can you help us, she said. Sure, I said. What do I do? Get my front wheels up. I pulled her up, got her wheels on the lip, then she instructed me to grab the front of her chair up near her thighs and pull. I got hold of her armrest uprights, bent down as I pulled, and she worked her little joystick. The motor whined, and she looked into my face, 
about one inch from hers and said, Oh, <laughs> I could smell her perfume and her clean clothes. Then she was up over the hump. I went back for him and he said, I think you'd better go behind me. We were he-men, no face-to-face -face grunting for us. Right, I bellowed. I grabbed the handle. Pop a wheelie, he said. Just pop me a wheelie. I popped him an excellent wheelie, fearing for a second I was going to flip him over, but feet in the air, he engaged his motor and climbed onto the bridge. After they said their thanks, she asked, Are you the friendly troll that lives under the bridge? Are you the friendly troll that helps people? That's me, I said. <laughs> well, great. Thanks again for making the time. Thank you. Yeah. That was fun. Before we slide into summer and with our presidential candidates almost a lock, my nominee for this episode's election year lit is the 1996 novel, Primary Colors. Initially published anonymously, but later revealed to be the work of journalist Joe Klein. And that's episode 12, Three Beginnings. Warm spring gratitude to Craig Childs, B.K. Lauren, and Luis Alberto Urea for their readings and sharing thoughts on beginnings and their process. I'm your host, Ben Hess. Please visit sponsor talkingbook.pub and partnerwritingxwriters.org for upcoming workshops and events. And a reminder to complete our first ever listener survey. Tell us what you like, what we could improve. bit.ly slash survey. The link is also available at storygeometry.org. Thanks for listening.